Hey guys, before we hop into this episode, we are just going to do a quick breathing exercise. I promise it won't take too long, 60 seconds at the most. This is just to help reduce any anxiety that you may have, um, and just kind of refocus ourselves before we get into it. To get started, we are going to take a deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. Take another deep breath in through your nose. You don't have to speed through it. Take your time and take a big breath out and take a big exhale. We're going to breathe in through our nose one more time and hold it for five seconds. and gently release let's do that one more time big deep breath in fill up your belly with all the breath hold it and release that felt really good let's do that one one more time big deep breath in through your nose And a big exhale. Feel all the air empty out of your belly. All right. Thank you so much for joining me uh, for a quick breathing exercise. We are going to go ahead and get right into this episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Black Girls Have Anxiety 2. Um, this is Ashley, your co-host, uh, my Regular host, Aloria, is not here today, but we do have a special guest returning back to the podcast. Um, she is a, an intricate part of the Black Girls Have Anxiety 2 family. Uh, we have Dr. Son Stevens, uh, licensed psychologist. And um, if you've listened to other episodes, you might have heard her on previous, uh, previous, previous podcast recordings. Um, she is our go-to for all things mental health education and knowledge. And so we're really excited to have her back. We haven't seen her in a while. So uh, <laughs> Dr. Oh. Stevens, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you for having me back. Yes, of course, of course. We always love to have you on the show. Um, for anybody that's like, hasn't, hasn't tuned in before um, or maybe hasn't listened to one of the episodes with you on it, like, can you give them a little bit of background about yourself? Certainly. So I am a licensed psychologist here in the state of Florida. I've been practicing for close to 14 years or so, working with um, just a continuum of psychopathology. So I work with individuals with like difficulties in normal day-to-day functioning, job loss, um, loss of relationships, to certainly more severe loss in terms of loss of family members, loss of a a spouse, more severe um, chronic disorders in terms of depression, anxiety, uh, trauma, schizophrenia, doing uh, work with individuals, families, and groups all across the developmental, um, across different developmental milestones from children, teenagers, adults and our older population so I work with quite a bit of us yes I love it I love it 
Um, and can you tell us a bit about the organization that, that you started? Yeah, so the name of the organization is called Standing in the Gap. Develop, excuse me, Standing in the Gap, <laughs> uh, CDC. And so we're an organization that is target that targets young women, um, young adult girls in different spheres, different areas. So we target mental health, we target legal advocacy, and we also target financial educational awareness. You know, for this population, we're we're primarily focus our efforts in the Northeast Florida area, so the Jacksonville area, where we have seen there's quite a glut of services, not necessarily services, but in terms of the, the um, being able to reach a certain strata of young girls and young adult women. And so our efforts are really focused on connecting these individuals to different organizations within the area, so to address that glut. And so, you know, we started this organization back in January 2014, you know, it's something that we're very passionate about. And so we continue to certainly um, do what we can in order to address those needs. Yes, love it, love it. Well, we certainly appreciate all the work that you do. And uh, we definitely appreciate you being a part of the Black Girls Have Anxiety Too family and continuing to come back and give us all the education um, and knowledge and just overall good vibes that um, that we love. So, so we appreciate well, you. you. <laughs> and I appreciate you all as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so this episode, we are going to talk about depression and we're going to talk about like what it is, um, go over some of the signs and symptoms. Um, if you've listened to other episodes, we've actually touched on um, SAD, which is seasonal affective disorder. disorder. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, which is um, a part of depression, but this episode is um, going to be going over the ins and outs of depression. Um, and yeah, just, just getting all the knowledge that Dr. Stevens has to give us. Um, so what, what is depression? Like, how would you describe it? So depression um, manifests very differently for different people, um, but depression is a period of a two-week period of sadness that is accompanied by um, typically slowed down retard or retardation, as we call it clinically, in functioning. So sadness, depressed mood accompanied by just a loss of interest, low motivation, maybe self-limited thoughts that are persecutory, uh, self-deprecating, um, difficulty eating, difficulty sleeping, along with some cognitive, again, with those cognitive ruminations that typically um, accompany depression. Yes. So um, when it comes to depression, um, like I said, I know that we've talked about SAD, um, but what are some of the different types of depression? So the different types of depression, certainly we have seasonal aspect disorder, which is a specific type of depression um, that generally affects individuals uh, given their exposure to light or lack thereof. We also have um, maybe uh, like different forms of depression. So we have the more um, episodic, depression, the acute forms of depression. So those are the periods of two weeks of sadness, 
that may, you know, have a sudden onset that's triggered by an identifiable cause, maybe a loss of a job, loss of a spouse, you know, et cetera. Um, and so normally and certainly expectedly, we'll see a change in that person's behavior that affects, and I should also mention this, that depression is different than from sadness in the sense that, they, that it affects your functioning in significant ways. So your ability to perform your, your job or be able to hang out with friends or socialize with others or certainly even socializing with your family. So it affects your functioning in significant ways. So of course we have acute forms of depression and we have more chronic and severe forms of depression. Those can be you know, more severe um, and the frequent, um, what we call the remission and the on re-onset of those depressive episodes over and over throughout the years. And then one of the more, more severe forms of depression, we have dysthymia disorder. And this is a pervasive chronic form of depression, low-level depression that may not necessarily accompany the more severe forms of suicidal ideation, psychomotor agitation, psychomotor retardation. But it's more so like this chronic pervasive low-level depression that persists for two years. And so everything is just very blah. Mm. Wow. So depression can really range from being short-term, like two weeks, all the way up to something that lasts for years. And for some people, for their entire life, wow. um, you know, the lifetime prevalence <clears throat> rates, you know, certainly vary. Last time I looked, I know the lifetime prevalence rates for women were around like 21%. Oh, for wow. men, it's a little bit lower for, for men at 17%, like 17.4. Don't quote me on the last, but it's right around that. You know, okay. but certainly women, we tend to experience depression, lifetime depression. So this means the onset remission, onset remission over and over and over throughout your life, 21% wow. at 21% rate. You know, and it shows yeah. that it's one in five women almost. Wow. That's really high. I mean, if you think about it, one in five women that you walk past every day may have maybe going through some sort of like long-term depression. Mm-hmm. Wow. Very much. Is it is it possible? So with with situations like that, when people are dealing with depression for years or decades, even is how do they de decipher if they're depressed? Because I'm assuming that if you're, and I'm assuming, but if you've been depressed for that long, it's kind of your normal state. And I feel like maybe that's how others perceive you too. Is that that's just kind of their normal state? That's who they are. Like. If someone is that has been that depressed for that long, how can they identify that that is not a normal or healthy, I guess, state to be in for that long period of time? Right. So it, it comes back, you know, to what we talked about or mentioned a little bit earlier in terms of how it affects your daily functioning. So being able to take care of yourself, for example, taking care of your daily functioning, being able to eat, cook food, you know, if you live alone or Let's say if you have, you know, you live with someone else, you know, being able certainly to eat, find the motivation to eat, to consume liquids. Um, you know, if you have a job or you're going to school, being able to go to school and complete the task associated with it in a responsible way that it doesn't interfere, you know, with your job performance or your work performance or your school performance. Um, being able to, you know, if, if you're a person who has, diverse interests or had, you know, you may have one interest, you know, being able to 
engage in those interests at the same in the same degree. If there's a significant change, you know, in those interests, or you stop hanging out or socializing with those friends, that's a pretty strong indicator that right. we're not necessarily just dealing with just sadness. You know, maybe it's something a little bit more serious. Yeah. So if you're kind of starting to isolate yourself or have been isolating yourself for a long period of time. Exactly. And just stop doing the fun things like going to family functions and things like that. Then those are definitely indicators. Very much so. Very much so. And a lot of times people will start to notice it. And, you know, most people who notice it, they'll say, okay, he's just just going through, he's going through these things right now. But when they start to notice that it's maybe days and days and weeks and weeks and maybe even months and they haven't necessarily noticed a change of back to what feels back to normal yeah and of course that raises the alarm for people understandably so yeah especially when you're you know used to maybe dealing with person very vibrant very um you know, full zest life and these changes happen and you start to notice this um change that coincided with that same stress or whatever happened you know a couple months right. back Right. And I guess in, in some ways, and, and we kind of touched this in our, touched on this in our last episode about when people are going through things and in our community, we tend to kind of like brush it off and say, oh, she's just, you know, she's just got an attitude or she's uh, doesn't want to talk to anybody or she's just rude or we just kind of brush it off without really digging a little bit deeper into why they're acting like that. And maybe mm-hmm. seeing if they need help. So, yeah, that's that's intense. Um, if somebody is going through this kind of long-term depression, um, like, what do you suggest in terms of ways to kind of create a new normal? So, and 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 I think this is where it really gets people, you know, because we always talk about. Um, routine mm-hmm. right having a routine having a routine is so very key because one you know we've talked about this before in terms of like homeostasis adaptation you're know, having the body like once the body adapts to something our body loves to have the same thing you know because again it's creating that well-worn path in our brain mm-hmm. so anything that we change or, or to counter that routine our body is going to resist. So for example, let's say, you know, a person who experienced a loss, say a loss of a friendship for whatever reason, this loss of a friendship certainly has impacted how they see themselves, um, how they feel about people, maybe certainly things that they enjoy doing, right? And so over say the next three weeks, they have no motivation, you know, to, to eat, no motivation to um, hang out with friends or things like that. So over three weeks, that pattern has become to more so withdraw. And so part of one way that we counter that is to create that routine. So we, yeah, like a scheduling routine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have the same time that you get up every day. And after that, you know, like, what do you do? What's your morning routine? You do that morning routine same in the same order every day you know you have the morning routine you eat you consume water if you're working or if you're going to school so in those same blocks 
you're creating the same activities every day. Mm-hmm. And then when it's time to come back home or time to resume your self-care activities at home, what time do you eat dinner? What time do you do this? What time do you do this? And so you have this um, a set of activities that you're doing and you're performing in the same order every day. And it's also especially important because we see that individuals you know, with um, mood disorders, it disrupts their sleep, partly because of the cognitive ruminations, other times because of the change in their routine. Mm-hmm. And so by having, you know, creating this routine, it really does help to improve sleep hygiene. So mm-hmm. in terms of the expectation that the brain has for saying, okay, it's time for us to slow down. It's time for me to start preparing for bed. So like, let's say if you typically go to bed at 11 o'clock, maybe starting your routine for bed at 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. So not only does this routine help with countering depression, but it also helps with addressing and reducing the problems with sleep, which also perpetuates a depressive episode. Right, right. I, and I like that you talked about routine as a form of self-care, um, because I know that self-care is has been kind of trendy, I guess, the past couple of years, um, but I always like that you bring up different ways to do self-care in a really like productive way in like a systematic way. And I definitely think even for myself, just having some sort of routine definitely helps me through the day, especially when I'm not feeling so great. Or I call it kind of like being in a cloud where I feel like I'm kind of falling down that depressive, you know, depressive slope. Um, definitely having some sort of routine, having different alarms set, um, especially like a bedtime routine um, definitely helps. I actually have like a bed, a bedtime timer that goes off like an hour before I want to go to sleep and my phone turns black and white. And then it kind of tells me, okay, like time to try to at least wind down and like actually get to the bedroom instead of just Mm -hmm. sitting on the couch or sitting on the computer. But yeah, definitely getting routine is, is key. Right. And I think that's one of the beautiful advents of a smartphone is that we have schedulers, we have alarms, like we have these many computers right in the palm of our hands. Mm-hmm. And, and it's so, it can be certainly counterproductive and we can get into that, you know, but it can be certainly so productive and so facilitative toward good self-care, mm-hmm. you know, certainly during our waking hours, as well as our non-waking hours. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely things like even things like do not disturb at nighttime and not hearing the notifications go off um, are, are super, super helpful. So, yeah, um, I'm so as far as I know that last time we talked, you brought up SIGI. So I just want to do another recap of the acronym SIGI and kind of um, what it means and what it's for. So thank you for bringing that up. So SIGI CAPS is um, an acronym that um, mental health professionals, psychologists learn to identify the different um, well more so symptoms of depression. So SIGI CAPS, take your SIGI CAPS for depression. Mm -hmm. So the SIGI starts off with S for sadness, sadness for two weeks, uh, more days than not for two weeks. I is for lack of interest or anhedonia. So, you know, not having or not being able to 
find interest or derive interest in things that you formerly enjoy or not even being able to find any activities that could be, potentially be interesting, right? right? Um, and then the G is for guilt or more so like your self, these uh, ruminative thoughts of persecution, thoughts of self-reproach that often accompany depression. So for these individuals, they often experience difficulty feeling good about themselves, you know, because they attack themselves in persecutory ways, meaning that, um, let's say, you know, going back to the example of the lost friendship, they start to self-blame themselves and in more so in, in, in this very distorted way where they are continuing to pile upon themselves. You know, so these thoughts of self-reproach of guilt. It's also accompanied by the E and for energy or lack of energy. So along with the lack of motivation or the lack of interest, we also have a lack of energy. So maybe you do have interest in doing activities or doing things or wanting to hang out with friends or want to hang out with family, but you don't have the energy to do so. Mm -hmm. You have C for caps for season for concentration. And that's for a lack of concentration. Oftentimes we see that the lack of concentration is either because person doesn't have the energy to derive any types of thoughts associated with let's say things that are interesting things they want to do or also sometimes they have problems concentrating because of the interference from the thoughts of self-reproach the a is for appetite lack of appetite or hyper appetite you know so sadness or depressed mood is not necessarily always associated with the loss of sometimes it can be it can certainly be associated with an acceleration. And in this case, it could be so a person, like once they start to experience depressed mood, they eat more than usual or certainly sleep less than usual, or they have restless sleep. Mm -hmm. So they're sleeping, but maybe they have bad dreams that they don't remember, they may remember, and it interferes with their sleep. And then we have the P for psychomotor retardation or psychomotor agitation. And this is more so than just, um, just a lack of energy. This is more so where people um, who experience depressed mood, they have, they're completely devoid of energy. Mm. And so this, this is what you typically uh, identify or, or think about when you see, when you think about a person with depression. Mm -hmm. And so with these types of individuals, they are um, more so confined to the bed or the other side where they have psychomotor agitation mm -hmm. so they get very irritated very easily and again it's not necessarily the mood but it's the behavior component of the irritability so they're maybe moving very frantically they can't necessarily get things um, accomplished and then of course the s is for um sleep for sleep and then s the last s is for suicidal ideation passive or active can you describe suicidal ideation again? Because I know um, people may mix that up with with suicidal thoughts, and I know that there's a slight variation between ideation and actually being suicidal. Right, right. So, so what? So suicidal ideation—that's a category that describes um, active meaning that you have very clear ideas about how you want to hurt yourself, right? 
versus passive um, suicidal ideation, where perhaps due to just a lack of energy, low motivation, not seeing that things are going well in your life, you are just ready for life to end. And so you don't have a clear plan, you know, and I'm just, and so a lot of times that could be accompanied by thoughts of, you know, if I get in an accident today, that wouldn't be a bad thing. Hmm. You know, so again, it's, it's not necessarily this very clear plan in order to harm yourself, but being the, um, the or, or, or having the result, res, um, having an accident or incident result in the termination of your life is a predominant thought that accompanies passive suicidal ideation. And like I said, for active suicidal ideation, this is more so where a person, you know, has very clear, they've articulated not only that they want to die, but they have a very clear plan in terms of, or it, it could or could not be um, accompanied by a clear plan as right. well as intent. Right. And those would be reoccurring thoughts, would they? Most, more times than not, more times than not, it would be. You know, I mean, of course, you know, sometimes we have individuals who just say it once, you know, and they just know, right. you know, and certainly, and, and either way, you know, we, we take suicidal ideation very seriously. Yeah. So if you have a friend or like maybe a family member um, who, because I know I've been around people that kind of make jokes about suicide and they say it in a joking way, but you kind of have a feeling like, is this your way of reaching out? Is this your way of ask, you know, asking for help? Um, if, you, if somebody has a friend or a family member that has done that in the past, um, like what should, they, what should they do? Well, d- definitely, like you said, you, know, you take it seriously, yeah. you know? And, in, and I think this is where that empathic listening um, is very key. You know, because the only person says it as an aside. And oftentimes we find that people who um, make attempts or die by suicide, they have made or are given, you know, sometimes many multiple warning signs. And sometimes they'll say it in a joking manner in order to see if people will um, pick up you know, to see if it's serious or not, or, or to see if people actually care, mm. you know? And so, and so in that sense, you know, let's say a person makes a statement like that and, and it may not necessarily be the best place to bring that up, you know, maybe reaching out to that person afterward, you know, say, hey, you know, I heard that you, you know, you made this or you said X, Y, Z, you know, I'm wondering how you're doing today, you know, and if, they start to talk about it and certainly process and so that's the way in which you can certainly provide them support and so encourage either that's called the national suicide hotline or reach out to their psychotherapist make sure that they have support systems in terms of the family members or friends you know people who are checking in on that individual um you know for people who certainly you know start to feel that their only option is suicide so definitely checking in I think it's one of the key things that we can do and you know showing uh, a very authentic and caring um, 
or, or, or being very caring and authentic toward people, you know, I think is one of the best gifts that we can give them, especially, you know, when they're experiencing these very real and dire feelings that often make them feel like suicide is the only option. Right, right. And as always, we'll definitely add some resources into the description. Um, if you or somebody that you know um, is ha- are having these feelings, um, definitely use the resources. And um, like Dr. Stevens is saying, reach out to your support network for help. Um, but yeah, all those resources will be in the description. Um, and hopefully this episode is helping you today. Um, another question I have for you. Um, so can you, can you actually be depressed and not feel sad in certain moments? You can, you can. And that's the thing about it is that we see that for children, for for children, depression manifests very differently as opposed to children and teenagers for that reason, um, exhibiting depressed mood. We have to see irritability, and that's a key symptom that um, when we start to notice the irritability, that's when our feelers start to suddenly um, get activated, and we're like, okay, all right, all right, what kind of mood disorder are we dealing with right now? You know, more often than not, because of the prevalence, more times than not, it is depression, mm. and so and, and so certainly when we see irritability for men, it manifests very differently. Because again, you know, in our society, men exhibiting or displaying, you know, conventional forms of, of emotions are still frowned upon, you know, even with all the ways in which we have, you know, certainly encouraged um, people to be able, you know, to, to be their authentic selves. There's still some societal constraints for men and for women in terms of how do you display your emotions. And so we certainly see, you know, for men that like more irritability as opposed to depressed mood and for older people, you know, for our older generation, for our older generation, along with that depression, you know, sometimes we see what we call like a mild cognitive impairment. So signs of forgetfulness, difficulty, I'm remembering, and that oftentimes the mild cognitive impairment often looks very much like depression or more so depression looks like mild cognitive impairment wow so meaning that you know like they start to show, show signs of dementia right but it's more so a form of depression and like once you start to provide and what's key for older people is to provide them with social support once you provide them with the social support we start to see them return back to baseline wow Wow. I, I definitely did not know that for any of those populations. I, I definitely did not know that. I think I just associate depression with kind of sadness and isolation and um, maybe just kind of like pushing people away um, and the sleepiness for sure. But I did not realize that. So so with children and teens, you said um, irritability is a big sign of depression. So for everyone out there that has kids or maybe you're a teenager listening to this, wondering why for the past few months, you've just been snapping on everybody. Um, It's it's so interesting because I remember being a teenager and there are definitely long periods of time where I would be depressed and 
I remember feeling happy sometimes throughout the day, but also just really, really feeling snappy in like being ready to kind of talk back in different situations where I, I typically wouldn't. And I wow. never kind of understood why. And I feel like you're, you're still a kid as a teenager and you're not processing these things. And I didn't really have the tools, you know, at school or I think at home to try to work through those things and, and make the connection of like, okay, am I, de- am I depressed? I don't think I realized I was depressed until years later, but right. um, that's definitely, definitely good to know. Um, and then, and you, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry, it, but you know, I guess I wanted just to add to you in a sense of like why, why we see such differences in how children and teenagers process emotions. Remember that their brains are not like functioning at an adult level, you know, so more um, complex forms of emotion, those, that, those parts of their brain are still really developing as well as certainly the, um, we've talked about the orbital frontal, the prefrontal cortex of their brains don't develop until 24 years old, right. you know, so where they tend to be more impulsive, so more irritability, mm-hmm. you know, that part is more genetically predisposed in children and adolescents because of the cognitive functioning, right? the lack of development in more mature areas. Right. Wow. And then I know that you said um, with men, um, they tend to show more signs of irritability and the effects kind of that society's expectation of like masculinity has on how men display their, their depression, I guess. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think that's really good to know because sometimes with men, especially, I feel like men in the black community, um, we just kind of like, you know, shoo people off whenever they're in these irritable, um, moods uh-huh. we never really associate it with like maybe they're going through something else and maybe there's something deeper on um, to why they've their mood has suddenly shifted um, and they're not typically like this so why all of a sudden you know are they like this right. um, yeah that's this is this is as usual great information Dr. Stevens <laughs> Um, And then as you mentioned, the older generation, and I definitely think in the future we should do an episode specifically on um, the older generation and how um, mental health can play a part in, um, you know, in things like dementia and then also people maybe dealing with, um, I guess just, I'm only 31, but I guess my assumption is that if you're in this older generation, then there's got to be some form of like a shift. Like people say there's a midlife crisis at like 40. I feel like I had one at like 25, (laughs) but there's got to be another one where like you're nearing, you're in kind of like this fourth stage of life, I guess. Uh And there's got to be a lot of changes that go on during that time. Um, I I actually, um, my grandmother had dementia and Alzheimer's before she passed. And it was just a lot for me to see what she went through and, and, you know, who she was growing up. And then all of a sudden within about a year, that person was gone. Yes. And, um, 
I'm sure for her, there was probably different stages that she went through before she actually got to that stage. But I definitely think in the future, we should definitely do an episode and talk about um, talk about that, that, um, that stage of life. It, you know, and that's the thing about it is that for that stage of life is accompanied by a major part of our ego development of generativity, right? Where you've had a very productive life. Mm-hmm. And you start, you hit this age where you're not able to do the things that you used to be able to do, you know, whether for some people it's physical activities, for other people pride themselves in being very smart, and they're not able to certainly remember certain things, remember names, remember birthdays, remember or solve problems or solve the New York Times crossword puzzle. They notice these changes and it's not just this one time, but it's persistent is all of these different areas and they start to feel like they're a shell of themselves and so you know when they start to accomplish or, or approach this period of the generativity they start to certainly question their utility in life no one needs me you know mm-hmm. everybody's still doing their life you know my grandkids my kids you know they have their own life I don't want to be a burden to them that's what we often hear and that's very that, that those feelings those thoughts are ripe for depression and often you know and, and we see with that pop, that particular strata of the population we see such um significant amount of people experiencing depression and also dying by suicide so i do wow. think i agree that you know that would be a worthwhile topic for us to explore yeah. in future uh podcasts Yes, definitely. I've got it in my notes here. So we will make sure that it's on the schedule for 2021 for sure. Yes. <laughs> um, so um, I know that we kind of touched on this before, but um, at, well, I know that you mentioned as a friend, how do, how do we help lo- our loved ones that are showing the, some of these signs of depression? And you mentioned, you know, um, maybe referring them to a therapist um, getting in touch with their support network. But, um, for a lot of people nowadays, especially, I mean, even before this COVID era, but now with COVID, a lot of people are under this, um, financial stress that they weren't under before. Maybe they don't have health insurance anymore, or maybe they do, and they just don't have the, um, like the disposable funds to pay, you know, a lot of money to go see a therapist. Like, what would you suggest if that's just not in the cards for you right now? So, you know, I think that's where one is social support is very key, you know, so if you have family members or friends, and it's not necessarily just having them available, but feeling as if they are dependable, they're helpful to you. Mm -hmm. And so if you can identify people like that in your life, those are the people that I would highly encourage you to connect with. It's only if lack of funds or lack of you know, insurance or another payer source is not available to you, you know, and if those aren't available, you know, if you subscribe to a particular religious orientation, you know, so reaching out to your rabbi, your imam, your, a priest, a pastor, a minister, you know, so that's another informal place where um, people oftentimes derive a lot of support. And again, if those are not available, um, I know through our community mental health centers, you know, we have sliding scales and then we also have um, free services that are available to different individuals. 
you know, yeah. who qualify. And so, and it, you know, and, and I sort of feel bad, you know, in terms of like making these recommendations because it's not nationally available. It really does depend yeah. on where you live in terms yeah. of the types of resources that, you know, we have. And oftentimes what we find is that the larger cities have more resources. Right. And the right. smallest it is not so much, you know, so, and it doesn't mean that we don't have individuals who don't need services. They're just as much as need and sometimes more so because right. there's been a glut of services where they, you know, haven't received any consistent services throughout years. And mm-hmm. so that's where the key in terms of where they need those services, but the funding or resources aren't there to provide them. Right. And um, you mentioned a sliding scale. So I just learned about a sliding scale a few years ago um, when I first started looking for a therapist. Um, can you tell us a bit about what what is a sliding scale and how does that work for, um, for therapists and then also for patients? <clears throat> so a sliding scale, this is a continuum of the amount of money that a mental health professional or actually any type of, um, you see, healthcare professional um, is willing to provide their services to you based on your financial resources. And so some use, like we have some nationally like available guides, you know, for using a sliding scale. So based off of that sliding scale, it should be this percentage off of your, um, the original amount of the services. And so based on where that individual falls or how, how much of their um, financial resources they do have, they, that corresponds with the percentage that can be deducted from, from the typical amount. You know, so it, it just ranges certainly, you know, for different individuals and certainly and so where the starting scale starts and where it ends, and certainly where the um, the price or the cost of the services, that certainly makes a difference. You know, for yeah. some people, you know, where it starts a little bit higher, even with the sliding scale, is still not feasible, financially feasible. Right. And so oftentimes it means that maybe they go shopping, you know, a bit. And then, you know, certainly if you're fortunate enough to maybe find, you know, a provider who's willing to offer pro bono services or free services to you at no cost, you know, certainly it may be over, uh, over a limited amount of time, mm-hmm. you know, in order to help you through or transition through those difficulties. Yeah. Well, so, you know. <laughs> well, so as far as like the, the, the actual <laughs> sliding scale, let's say, cause this is how I kind of, I understood it is like, let's say the person typically charges $150 and they may say, okay, their sliding scale goes down to $80 or something to that effect, but you can pay somewhere in between that um, as kind of you guys talk back and forth. You can figure out what works best. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Yes. Right. So exactly. So if a person wants say a mental health professional charges $150, and depending on, um, and again, like I said, it depends on the system that you enter. It may be more formalized where you have to submit all of your documents in order to qualify. And then maybe for the smaller providers, it's less formal. So I can mm-hmm. say, so it's just this back and forth communication. 
Okay, all right, so I typically charge this. Can you afford this? Well, I can't afford this, but I can do this. Okay, you know, so you're going back and forth in order to identify and agree upon a mutually agreed upon rate that's okay. feasible for both parties. Right, right. Okay, that definitely makes sense. Um, and then I definitely want to point out for anybody that's listening to this that um, maybe you've tried to find a therapist and you haven't had much luck because either it's out of your price range or um, for me, I know I was, when I first started looking for a therapist, I was a bit surprised that um, there are quite a few people that don't take health insurance, um, which I didn't know, but I would just say, keep looking. And if you have health insurance, go through your health insurance, because typically they do provide um, a database, whether it be on their website, or a lot of times you can call in um, and they can kind of help help you on that journey and finding somebody that works for you. Um, and maybe somebody that does take insurance. Um, and like Dr. Stevens is saying, if they uh, have a sliding scale, take a look at that and, and check out your options. But if you've just looked at a couple different people and have found them to be out of your price range, don't stop now. <laughs> Definitely right. circle back, keep looking. Um, if you're comfortable enough, ask around for somebody that might be able to at least suggest someone for you to work with. Um, but yeah, it can be a bit of a task, but it's definitely worth it once you find someone that's a good fit. And it's actually, I say one other thing about the sliding yeah. scale, you know, yeah. just because you receive like sliding scale um, adjusted rate or pro bono services, that doesn't mean that you qualify for lower quality services. Like you qualify for services just as if you're a full paying customer. And it's okay for you to, to demand that, you know, but certainly in my experience, most mental health professionals will treat that um, sliding scale client or client who's receiving a sliding scale or the client who's receiving pro bono services just as well, you know, as an individual, you know, who's full pain, you know, right. and certainly if not, that's where I definitely encourage you to have a very frank conversation, you know, with your therapist about some of the changes or differences that you notice. And it's okay, you know, to have that conversation. Yeah. I mean, I can certainly understand, you know, the fear around doing so, but you're entitled to full services. Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, so the quality should not be lost um, if you are getting, um, if you are on a slightly different type of pay program um, with your therapist. So, exactly. yes. Um, all right, Dr. Stevens, did you have anything else for us today? <laughs> well, you know, I just want to tell people, you know, certainly, because the thing about it is that we talk about depression as being this, this normal thing that everybody goes through and it's really nothing, you know, but the thing about it is that, again, sadness is different from depression. Depression is a very serious disease that, again, that, you know, we talked about affects, you know, up to 20%, you know, of a population. I think here in the U.S. and you know when you see some of the prevalence and how seriously it impacts people and their lives, it really does have a serious cost financially, certainly and emotionally, you know, for us. And so I guess you know I just want to say in a sense that when a person or if you are experiencing depression, you know that is very serious, you know, and I want to make sure that you know, that you, the person who's listening, that you receive services and you understand and know that you're cared for and that, you know, that it's not necessarily something that 
it may be something that passes, it may not be something that passes, but the earlier that you receive and, and solicit services, the better. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much, Dr. Stevens. This was another um, amazing episode, um, very insightful and educational. And I hope that everybody's listening, that is listening, um, was able to learn something from today. Um, but as usual, thank you so much for taking out the time um, in your weekend to, to meet with us and to answer all of my questions. Yeah, and to just help us um, learn more about mental health and just become more comfortable talking about it. And I think the more comfortable that we can all um, become with talking about mental health and being really open about it with our friends and our family, I think the better our overall mental health will be. Um, I think a lot of times that's the first step is just actually getting the words out of your head and out of your, out of your throat and actually saying them. And sometimes that's just the first step to, to your healing and to, um, to actually working on your mental health. Um, so again, Dr. Stevens, thank you so much for today. Um, we really, really appreciate you. And I hope that you know that. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you. And to you as well. Thank you. Um, well, thank you to everyone that joined in for today. Um, we appreciate you tuning in to Black Girls Have Anxiety too. Uh, we hope that you continue to tune in uh, for more episodes with Dr. Stevens and other guests. Um, thank you and have a wonderful day. Bye. Bye. -bye. <laughs>